0: Yes, yes, yes. We are back. Welcome back to the Transcend Human podcast. Great to be with all of you. Uh, another beautiful Monday morning here in Southern California, August 1st, 2022. Um, you know, I was thinking the other day that and I think a friend even told me, he's like, yeah, it's your, your intro is a little repetitive. You kind of say the same thing every time. And I agree, but I'm not sure what to do about that. I mean, every, every time I jump on here, it's the same thing. I'm just geeked that I get to do this. I'm happy that I get to spend time with you. So that's what comes out, you know. Thanks for being with me. It's a it's a great day. It's a beautiful sunny day here. Great to be with you on the podcast. Uh, kind of reminds me of a a guy I follow on TikTok. Uh, his name is Ken Tracy, and he has a very repetitive style, but I find it comforting. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why I follow him. So literally every morning when he wakes up, he does a TikTok and he says, good morning, good morning, good morning to you. Same start every single morning. And then his show is called coffee with Ken. So at some point he holds up his nice steaming hot cup of coffee. And he says, uh, I have a cup of coffee here. I'm going to drink. And uh, I hope wherever you are, that you have a, you know, a nice, hot, warm cup of coffee in front of you as well. Cheers to us. And he takes this big sip of coffee and you can just see the steam coming up in the front of his face. And it's just great. Every single morning. Repetitive. But it is what it is. I think, like I said, there's some level of comfort in that repetition. That's something that we can count on. Something that is heartwarming. Um, it's just great. So it is what it is. August 1st, 2022. Here we go. Minute of transparency for today. I'm just going to call this the beautiful game. So, when I was growing up, I had a very negative view of soccer or football, as it's called across the pond. Uh, not because I played soccer and I didn't like it, but because of the way that I perceived it to be. I viewed it as a sport that only other countries played, right? Uh, a sport with Less class, if you will, than some of the sports that I had grown up with. In part because of the lack of complexity compared to other sports. But also because there were riots and fights and even murders that had happened at soccer stadiums across the world. Me, I grew up with hockey, ice hockey, a real man sport to be sure, right? First you had to learn how to skate on ice before you could even think about playing the sport. Then you had to learn how to use a hockey stick, pass and shoot a heavy rubber puck, um, all while being manhandled by the opposing team. Next, I grew up with American football, right? A sport where the ball isn't even designed to roll correctly. You have to literally learn how to catch it, how to throw it, how to kick it in a straight line. Again, all the while under threat of being smashed by the opposing team. And then there was baseball, I grew up playing baseball, all the way from t-ball, all the way up to about 15, 16 years old. Not the most exciting sport in the world, but it still requires unique talents, right? The ability to pitch that little ball with, with such power and control. Then as a hitter, you have to be able to hit that small little ball while it's coming at you over 90 miles an hour sometimes, and not always in a straight line. Then in the field, you have to be able to catch the ball when it's hit and immediately know what to do, where to throw the ball, which base do I have to throw the ball to based on who's on base and all of that. So back to soccer. I mean, how hard could it actually be, right? you run around and you kick a ball, the sort of thing that you do on a playground in kindergarten. Eleven guys on a team running around, something we all know how to do already. You grow up learning how to run. And then you kick this round ball, a ball that's meant to roll because it's round. You kick this ball around. Uh, the, The 11 players on the other team simply try to steal the ball from you and do the same in the opposite direction. And then in order to score, you kick the ball into a goal the size of Delaware, a goal that no average person should be able to defend. And yet, almost every soccer game I watched for some reason growing up always ended in like 1-0, or 0-1, or 1-1, or the worst case scenario, 0-0. Like I said, in my book, there was nothing good about the sport of soccer. I just wrote it off. I I had no desire to play it or watch it. Then, I met Tammy, my beautiful wife. When we met, her younger brother was still in high school. And guess what Ryan played? You guessed it. He played soccer. He played club soccer in the area. He played varsity soccer for the high school team. And after high school, he even received a scholarship and played at Butler University for four years. Now, I can still remember the first high school soccer game I went to. I wasn't excited about watching soccer, but I was excited about hanging out with my new girlfriend and her family. And this went on for, oh, a couple years. I watched him play as a junior, then as a senior, I watched their team as they made it all the way to the state championship that year. And over those two years, something strange started to happen. I started to learn about soccer more with each game that I watched, more with each conversation that I had with Ryan, now my brother in law. I started to pick up on the intricacies of the game. I kicked the ball around myself. I learned just how hard it is to actually get that little round ball to go where you want it to go. I learned about formations, set pieces, the strange version of offsides that they use. And as all of the pieces started to fall into place, I found myself actually enjoying the game. A few years later, my wife sent her little kids up for community soccer, and I got to watch the entire process from day one to high school, and everything in between. I got certified to coach and I coached my kids for a few years, uh, eventually stepping aside when my knowledge of the game just wasn't where I needed to be. My oldest daughter played her entire life. And because she played at a pretty high level, um, she obviously looked up to women older than her who played soccer. So we, we started watching the women's national team. Um, they became a fun thing that we did as a family. Uh, we even attended one of their games when they came to Chicago. And to this day, if they're playing on television, we'll probably sit down and watch it as a family. And to top it all off, I even decided to play indoor soccer for a while as an adult. Now that, my friends, is what you call a 180, right? It's the perfect illustration for our topic today, which is transcending oversimplification. Three sections today. The first, judging books by their covers. Second, commonly oversimplified. And number three, the proximity solution. Number one, judging books by their covers. In essence, that's what I did with soccer, right? I took one look at the cover of the book and I decided it wasn't for me. I looked at it from afar, made a bunch of judgments, assumptions, and I basically just wrote it off just like that. I never opened the book. I never read a single chapter. I simply decided in advance that it wasn't for me, not something I wanted to read. It didn't matter how many people told me to read the book. Oh, it's so good. You should check it out. I wasn't about it, right? I wasn't up for giving it a try. And the longer I live, the more I see this for what it is. Oversimplification. Looking at someone or something and just writing the entire story in our mind without any factual information at all. And for our purposes today, I want to refer to this as oversimplification. Boiling something extremely complex down into something that our simple little minds can latch onto. Sometimes for good, but most often not so good. Often drawing the wrong conclusions and believing the worst about a person, place, or thing. Now in the past, we've addressed this idea of cognitive distortions. And uh, simplepsychology.com has an article where it lists 11 of them, right? And the funny thing is that oversimplification is not even on that list. However, as I read through them, I really feel like oversimplification is actually a concept that includes many of the ones that are on that list. So for example, there is overgeneralization, jumping to conclusions, predictive thinking, labeling, and black and white thinking. And as we go through the episode today, you'll you'll hear a lot of those things. In what I'm talking about. But let's start from ground zero, as always. Dictionary.com defines it this way. To oversimplify is to simplify to the point of error, distortion, or misrepresentation. Now that is a great definition. So back to my soccer illustration. I simplified the game to the point of error. What I thought about soccer was a distortion. And when I talked about soccer, I was probably, it it was probably a terrible misrepresentation of the sport. Now, on some level, this process of oversimplification is making judgments about someone or something, being judgmental without cause. And what do we call that? Prejudice, being prejudiced because we are prejudging or judging beforehand without all the facts. Anyone else see where I'm going with this? because I believe that this is literally one of the biggest issues that we're facing today. Not because we as people are getting better at oversimplification, though that may be true on some level, but I would suggest that it's happening more and more often. And one of the biggest culprits, of course, is technology. More specifically, the technology that has changed the landscape of our culture, specifically how we communicate, the internet, YouTube, social media. And basically... Every other platform that provides instantaneous access to the world, the ability to say whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want to say it. No questions asked, well, most of the time. And in a world where this is possible, it is also possible for oversimplification to become that much more prevalent, both from people spewing their opinions and for the people hearing them. So what do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, I think what I might have said if I had all of this technology back then, about soccer at least, I I probably would have said some really judgy things about the game, things that were obvious oversimplifications of the beautiful game. Then on the receiving end, people around the globe would have seen my rants about soccer, right? My guess is that many of them would have immediately oversimplified me as a person because of that, because of my rants about soccer. And that's what I'm talking about, the ease with which we oversimplify things in this new world of global communication. At the end of the day, the technology we have in place provides the following. It provides space, distance between people. It keeps us on a very high level with other people, making it very easy for us to oversimplify them. And when you're not going very deep with people, you don't understand where they're coming from. You see this all the time, especially on TikTok. Someone posts a video with a strong opinion. Then another person comments that they're on crack. Then the original person posts a rebuttal, to which another person lashes out. And this is nothing new. I still remember this back in the day when we were posting blog posts. I mean, As long as you had the comments turned on, you were offering for people to comment and make sometimes nasty remarks about the content that you posted. So it's nothing new, but with TikTok, you get a front row seat, video and all, to the back and forth that happens on the platform. And it's amazing to see oversimplification at work. Number two, commonly oversimplified. So technology might be the vehicle making our oversimplification possible, uh, but let's back up the bus and talk about what it is that we're oversimplifying. And since it would take literally forever to list every single thing that we oversimplify, let's just use three buckets that we've used in the past. People, places, and things. So this will at least help us understand the broad areas where we're prone to oversimplify. And again, our working definition is that to oversimplify is to simplify to the point of error, distortion, or misrepresentation. So let's start with people. Right. This one probably has the most devastating effect because it's literally directed at another person. So obvious examples would be judging people based on race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, sexual identity, etc., etc. Believing in historical stereotypes like, well, all Canadians know how to play hockey, right? No. That's not true at all. Uh, Politics is another area where people tend to oversimplify, uh, especially these days with the growing polarization seen in our country. People on each side throwing oversimplified insults across the aisle at each other. If you're a Democrat, you're a socialist. If you're a Republican, you're a religious nationalist. Um, And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Now, there are definitely people on both sides of the political aisle that fit these descriptions, but by oversimplifying and clumping a person into one of those camps simply because of the way he or she voted in the last election is far from accurate. Uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned should be a glaring example of that, right? We tend to oversimplify and believe that, well, all Republicans are pro-life. In this scenario, our country must be equally divided, right? making Roe v. Wade something that is always hanging in the balance between those two ideations. But this actually isn't true as as well. In fact, the majority of the country is pro-choice. Over 55% for sure that we know of, and it's growing according to a recent Gallup poll. So the truth is, the only reason that Roe v. Wade was overturned was because a conservative Supreme Court had the power in their hands and they decided to act on their religious beliefs Versus the will and the good of the people they serve. Okay, enough of that. Let's go to places. So, places, this is probably the least obvious of the three, um, but we do oversimplify places, believe it or not. When I say Russia, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Putin, communism, evil, bullying, war criminals, danger to the planet. I know, me too. When the invasion first started, we literally just as a country looked at Russia as the enemy, as the bad guy, I mean, our brains literally just went right back to the Cold War, and we just assumed Russia is the problem. But by now, we should be starting to see how these beliefs are an oversimplification. When the war started in Ukraine, we took the behavior of one man, Putin, and a probably a small handful of corrupt people in his government, and we just extrapolated that and assumed that it was the will of the entire country as if every Russian has signed a document requesting that Putin invade Ukraine. However, similar to our misunderstanding of the Roe v. Wade thing, we're way off here as well. Now on the surface, it's a bit confusing, right? Because many polls suggest that upwards of 70% of the Russian population agree with Putin's rationale for the war in Ukraine. The problem is the average Russian doesn't even understand what's going on thanks to the Russian media which is so corrupt and controlled by the government. So what they're hearing is a very shaded version of the truth. The Russian people are also afraid to speak up even if they did know the truth, right? Living in Russia isn't like living in the US. Just ask Brittany Griner about that. You're always under threat of incarceration for statements against the government. Similarly, any formal protest or march often winds up with people being incarcerated for long periods of time so it's not a legal system that you really want to mess with the other thing is that phone conversations text conversations and even messaging over social media can be watched and monitored in the country making it very difficult to gauge the true beliefs of the russian people but when you get the average russian alone for example a uh, a reporter you know in russia will pull someone aside and they'll have a a heart-to-heart conversation out of the public eye about what's going on. Um, You know, they explain that they can't believe it. They can't believe what Putin is doing to a country that was just living in peace and not threatening them in any way. And they wish the war would end like a bad dream. But this is the part that we miss when we oversimplify the entire thing down into one view of what's going on. Now, one final example of a place, and then we'll move on. And I'm just gonna call this place the ghetto. Now, you notice I didn't say what ghetto or where, I simply said the ghetto. And immediately you had a reaction, right? Because we've oversimplified it in our minds. What are the things that we assume when we hear the word ghetto? We assume drug use, gang violence, murder, carjackings, chop shops, breaking and entering, graffiti, bad public schools, low graduation rates, homeless people. And the list goes on and on and on. And while many of these things do happen in the ghetto, they also happen everywhere else in our society, right? And not everyone in the ghetto is participating in these behaviors. How do we know? Because we hear story after feel-good story about people who made it out, right? A kid who lived in the ghetto but made good choices, took school seriously. Maybe he played a sport or... Uh, was part of an after-school club that offered safe alternatives to the streets. But whatever the case, they worked hard, they had a good life, and it worked out for them, right? Today they're an actress or a actor or a college graduate or a professional athlete. And I think we latch onto those stories because they break the bubble for us. They poke holes in the way that we have oversimplified the ghetto, which is why these stories hold so much weight in our minds. Now, important caveat before we move on, what I'm not saying is that we need to start looking at the ghetto as a fun little neighborhood down the street where nothing bad ever happens. That is completely irrational. There is no getting around the fact that there are low-income neighborhoods all across the country, in every city, every state. And unfortunately, we as a society have been okay with these areas going to hell in a handbasket right? We don't police them the same. We don't provide the same educational opportunities. We look the other way when it comes to the drug and the homelessness problems that exist. It's all part of the capitalistic system that we've built in our country, right? Because we believe things like survival of the fittest, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Nobody's going to help you. You have to help yourself. Only for so many people, the system is against them, right? There is no help. There is no process for getting out of systemic poverty easily. So I'm not saying we accept it. What I am saying is that when we oversimplify the ghetto as this place where nothing good happens, it's very easy for us to look the other way, pretend that it's a big problem that's not fixable, right? And the worst part is that we fail to see the people that are involved. We fail to see that there are hundreds upon thousands of real people living with real kids, real hopes, real dreams, and real talents just waiting to be unleashed. Now. I've struggled with this form of oversimplification my whole life, right? Doing the inner city this way basically keeps it out of sight, out of mind. It is what it is, so just don't get lost and don't ever end up there by accident. In fact, I even used to use the Bible to rationalize my views. Uh, John 12, 8 says, For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And that's all I needed to hear, right? One verse out of the Bible, and it's like, well, they're always going to be here, so what's the point of trying to help or fix the problem? Nothing is going to change. But how sad is that, right? This has been part of my spiritual journey and my movement, probably my movement through the colors of spiral dynamics. It's growth, awakening, enlightenment, deconstruction, all of the above on different levels. Coming to realize how connected we all are on this planet. Okay, let's move to things. So let's finish up with the most broad category, things. Obviously we can't work our way through all of the things because that would take years. So the important distinction here is that these aren't people and these aren't places, so everything else. My soccer example, in the minute of transparency, right? I saw soccer as a bad thing and something that I grossly oversimplified in my mind when I was younger. Uh, an easy way to look at this category is to ask yourself questions like this. What are some of the things that I would say I hate, dislike, or I'm just not that into, right? For me, that was soccer. I disliked it and I had no desire to get into it. But what are some of the other things that fall into that category for me or for you? For me, it was it was theater, right? Until my middle daughter started performing, I think I had only seen one Broadway show in my entire life. Uh, when I was in college, I think, I, I went to see Les Miserables in Chicago, and I had oversimplified that entire genre down into something that just wasn't for me, something that I never really needed to do again. Here we are, years later, and I go see every possible thing that my daughter performs in. Uh, my wife got annual passes to the Seegerstrom, which is the, the local theater for off-Broadway shows in our area, and I've been with her to at least five musicals and I actually look forward to going. Why? Because my oversimplification of the genre was challenged. So what is it for you, right? What are some of the things that you oversimplify to the point where you've put it on a shelf so high that you can't even reach it? Number three, the proximity solution. So we spent the bulk of our time defining oversimplification right? And the people, places, and things that often house those oversimplifications. But now that we understand the basics, what do we do? How do we keep ourselves from falling into this trap? Well, there are many ways. In fact, the article I referred to earlier from simplepsychology.com had a bunch of suggestions. Uh, At the end of their article, um, they suggested that these are ways that we can work on our cognitive distortions. So the first idea was to identify the thought, basically getting to the place where you can see that you're thinking about something is suspect. Second, reframe the situation. So the idea here is to look for alternative explanations for your belief. Uh, number three, perform a cost-benefit analysis. So this was an interesting one. Basically figure out what your oversimplification is costing you in life. Number four, replace absolutes. So getting rid of words like always, never, things like that from your vocabulary. Uh, Number five, label the behavior. So instead of labeling yourself as bad or broken, label the behavior itself or the thinking itself. Number six, find the evidence. So basically become a scientist, a researcher, or a detective in order to prove the evidence that you have or the evidence that you are using to oversimplify something. And finally, search for positive aspects. So the idea here is to replace your oversimplification with another thought or behavior, one that you know is more positive. So all good things, um, but I don't know that they fully apply to what we're talking about today. Because there's one that I believe supersedes, or at least includes, those in the list above. And this is the idea of proximity. Now, proximity is defined by dictionary.com as nearness in place, time, order, occurrence, or relation, or closeness. So to me, this is the single most important element in busting oversimplification. Closeness, nearness, or proximity. Why? Let me explain. The fastest way to create oversimplifications in our life is to distance ourselves from them, right? The farther we are away from a person, a place, or a thing, the easier it is for us to oversimplify them in some way or shape or form. But the good thing is that the opposite is also true. The fastest way to bust an oversimplification is to decrease the distance, because the closer that we move to that person, place, or thing, the harder it is to oversimplify it or them. Proximity is the antidote to oversimplification. One more time. Proximity is the antidote to oversimplification. So here are just a few examples, right? When I started going to soccer games, talking about soccer, coaching soccer, I was no longer able to hold on to my oversimplification of the beautiful game. When I started watching my daughter perform in musicals, I was no longer able to oversimplify the genre. When I started helping my son look for 1990s range Mazda Miatas and then helped him fix one up, I was no longer able to oversimplify my view of working on automobiles. When we started bringing kids into our home through the Safe Families program, we were no longer able to oversimplify the difficulties people face and what it means to be a single parent with no help. And the list goes on and on. Proximity is a fork in the road, right? The closer you get to a person, the more you realize that you have two options. First, you can hold on to your oversimplification. You can double down and maybe even fight the person, right? Though if this is the case, you are probably never truly proximate to the person. Or number two, you realize that there's more than meets the eye, and you watch as your oversimplification disappears. Let's finish up with a difficult one. So at this point in our history, political polarization has become a big deal. Now, it may have been like this in the past at some point, But not in my lifetime. Like, as I look back, I don't recall it ever being like this. And, like we've discussed, the farther apart we are, the easier it is to oversimplify those on the other side of the aisle. Each side judges the other based on the political affiliation alone. Throw in technology and social media, and it's literally like throwing gasoline on a fire. I've even seen people on TikTok filming homes in their neighborhoods, making fun of the people living in the home because there's flags flying in the yard. But again, there's distance, right? They don't know the people living in the house because there's no proximity. But let's say that something happens, something that forces proximity. Let's say that those two families, each on opposite sides of the aisle, has each has a son, right? And for some crazy reason, those two boys wind up on the same travel soccer team. Now, there's proximity, right? Both families are going to be on the sidelines together. Both families will spend weekends together at tournaments. Both families are going to see their sons working together to achieve a common goal. Both families might see their sons hugging each other after a goal that they've scored. Uh, One of the families might see the other family's son pick their son up after an injury and help him off the field. And after all of these proximate interactions, there's a chance that the political polarization fades. Why? Because these phrases start to mean something. Walking a mile in their shoes, seeing the world through their eyes, see behind the formal curtain. And the more you know about a person's past, their upbringing, and the things that hurt them along the way, you start to develop empathy. You realize that you're on a journey just like they are. Now, I said at the beginning that this was a difficult one, and there's a reason why they say not to talk about politics or religion at Thanksgiving. Because there's a chance that these families could continue on as they as they were, right? Allowing their political beliefs to cloud their judgment, keeping them from actually listening, hearing and learning from the other family. That's a very real possibility. But so is the other, the possibility that proximity changes everything. That someday the families become close enough to even share a backyard barbecue together. um, That they'll be able to focus on similarities and just agree to disagree on all the other stuff. Okay, I said that was the last one, but let's throw in one more just because. So I'm going to add this one for a friend. Let's say my friend has oversimplified the whole LGBTQ plus issue, right? He created distance, both physically and cognitively, from people Falling into this population. And this distance allowed his oversimplification to grow into a highly opinionated, deeply rooted worldview. Then let's say his son comes to him one day and says, Dad, I have something to tell you. I'm gay. I've always been gay. I just never felt like I was able to open up and be honest about it. Now, here's the interesting twist. Now I'm in a dilemma. I mean, my friend is in a dilemma because the distance that existed between my friend and that group of people just disappeared immediately in the blink of an eye. Because the proximity he had with his son is now challenging the distance that he had with the LGBTQ plus community. So the oversimplification that he had held for so long is now at an immediate fork in the road, a fork that he didn't even see coming the proximity now forces the two decisions we talked about, right? The first, he can dig in, hold on to his oversimplification, and probably ruin the relationship with his son forever. Or, number two, he can allow the proximity and what he knows to be true about his son already to dissolve the oversimplification and help him grow. Now, I told that story the way I did, not because my son came to me with that revelation, but because I have played this scenario over and over in my mind, hundreds of times, about all three of my kids. I grew up in a family in a religious setting. I went to a religious school. And, you know, even just being a, alive at that time in history, it was very easy to oversimplify the LGBTQ plus community. But over the years, I have had to deconstruct those views. And I've fought hard to rid my life of those kinds of oversimplifications. And when it came to this issue, I've played the scenario over and over in my mind. What if one of my kids came to me and revealed this about himself or herself? What would I do? What would I say? And though it's been a long road, I can say with certainty today that I would look them dead in the eye and I would say, thank you so much for trusting us with that information. I love you the same yesterday, today, and I'll love you the same tomorrow. I'm proud to be your parent, and I'm going to support you on the journey, no matter what that journey looks like. And really, at the end of the day, the only reason that I would be able to say those things that way is because I did the hard work over time to let go of some of the oversimplifications that I had allowed to be created in my life. I mean, when I look back to a younger version of myself, it scares me to think what I may have said because I probably would have done something stupid. I probably would have said the wrong thing. And who knows, irreparable damage could have been done to that relationship. So let's land the plane. This week, my questions should be pretty obvious, right? Question number one, in your life, what books do you tend to judge by their covers? Number two, what are the people, places, or things in your life that you've oversimplified? And finally, how can you apply the proximity solution to your oversimplifications? And that's it, folks. That is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, everyone, have a great week. Deconstruct some of those oversimplifications. And as always, keep transcending human.